This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. A lot of the gynecologists that I talk with are like anti-soap or anti-any kind of cleanser on the vulva, but they work with patients who are particularly sensitive, who have recurrent BV, recurrent UTI, recurrent um, yeast infections. For those populations, that's great advice. For the general population, 90% of women, they probably can and maybe even should use a cleanser. So I think, you know, paying attention to, to what your own philosophy of healthcare is and finding a practitioner who works with you with your healthcare philosophy, I think that's really important. Welcome to FemPower Health, Georgie here. Despite the estimated $500 billion in annual medical expenses directed toward women's care in the United States, awareness and education of vaginal microbiome health for both medical professionals and consumers is severely lagging. Now we've heard so much about the gut microbiome and already know there's much more to learn. We really also need to better understand the vaginal microbiome. And so today, Dr. Beth Dupriest and I talk about what we know and what we don't know and why this is so important. And it's great to have her here because not only is she the Chief Science Officer at Vaginal Biome Science, but she's really spent a lot of time in women's health and biological sciences, even teaching microbiology, genetics, biochemistry, and pathophysiology. One thing I wanted to point out is in the episode, you may hear terminology around FDA approval, but the correct terminology is FDA clearance. There's actually quite a difference. Enjoy the episode. Today, we are here to talk about the vaginal microbiome. And recently, actually in season three, I spoke to a company that is actually testing a lot of products because apparently the FDA doesn't necessarily look at products to determine their impact on the vaginal microbiome. So today we're going to get really educated on why the health of our vaginal microbiome is so important. But before we dive in, Beth, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me, Georgie. Um, So I'm Beth Dupriest. I'm the chief science officer for a company called Vaginal Biome Science. We're a sister company of Good Clean Love, which produces um, all sorts of products like lubricants, vaginal moisturizers, anything for vaginal health and sexual health for, for people with vaginas. Awesome. And tell us a bit more about the research that the company is doing and why it's you know so focused on the vaginal microbiome. Yeah. So um, vaginal biome science was um, developed about a year and a half ago. It sprouted out of work that was being done in Good Clean Love looking at the vaginal microbiome because the vaginal microbiome... Um, both impacts vaginal health and it reflects vaginal health. So if you can look at the vaginal microbiome, you know an awful lot about what's happening with women's health. So you want a vaginal microbiome to basically have lactobacillus bacteria in it, and that's it. And women who don't have lactobacillus, who have other kinds of bacteria, they're prone to conditions like bacterial vaginosis, yeast infections, urinary tract infections, all sorts of different conditions 
Uh, and so making sure that the vaginal biome is healthy is really a, a good start to making sure that you have good vaginal and sexual health. And some may react and say, yes, but for UTI, I can take this. And for BV, I can take this. And But I think today we're going to talk about what are the things you can do so that you don't have these issues. And it's really about being proactive, which I feel like is is what so many of my guests on FemPower Health discuss. So can you tell us, outside of not having recurrent UTIs and things like that, what is a healthy vagina? Yeah, so it's really just a couple of different characteristics that we look at. So a healthy vagina, number one, has a nice thick lining. We call that the epithelium. It should be 30 to 50 cell layers thick in a, uh, a woman of reproductive age. And that, uh, that lining produces a, a substance called glycogen that serves as the food for bacteria. The bacteria specifically are those lactobacilli. The vagina hosts um, just a couple different species of lactobacilli. Lactobacillus crispatus, lactobacillus gasseri, and lactobacillus jensenii are the three um, healthiest species that can be found in the vagina. There's also another called lactobacillus inners that's less healthy, but still a little bit protective. And together, these lactobacilli make the vagina have an acidic pH. The pH is around four, which is one of the most acidic places in the human body. So um, together, basically having that healthy vaginal epithelium, uh, having those lactobacilli and having an acidic pH, those are the, the key characteristics you look for for a healthy vagina. And I should also mention that the pH uh, is acidic because of the presence of lactic acid that's produced by those lactobacilli. Okay, thank you. So those those are the key healthy things. Now, since we were talking about the healthiness of the, the vagina, we know that women's hormones change throughout the menstrual cycle as well as over their lifetime. And so what should we be aware of in those changes and again what quote unquote normal should be because you know i think one of the other things we see on the the podcast and talking to these guests and even many of the women that i connect with is we think whatever is happening to our own body is normal and yes there is a range of normal but because we live with our body every day unless someone proactively says this is what it should or shouldn't be Unless it's like something egregious, you're kind of like, huh, I guess this is just how it works. And so, you know, just as assuming that we have so much still to learn um, about our own bodies, what should we be expecting in these changes? And so I don't know if we want to start with the menstrual cycle and then go over the changes in our lifetime. You know, I, I agree about the, the, the piece about as our bodies change, especially changing with age, we just... We just assume those changes are a normal part of aging or a normal part of the experience of, of women. And, and you're right that that uh, sometimes our experiences are not. The important thing to keep in mind when it comes to understanding a healthy vaginal microbiome is that this is all driven by estrogen. So as estrogen goes up and down throughout the menstrual cycle, that's going to influence that vaginal epithelium and the amount of glycogen that's produced. And that in turn will affect the lactobacilli. So across the menstrual cycle, um, really it's during menses that the vaginal microbiome is going to change. The rest of the cycle, you can generally expect to have a fairly steady vaginal microbiome, but then once bleeding starts, the drop in estrogen that causes, uh, and the drop in progesterone really is what causes bleeding to occur, but there's also drop in estrogen that's going to change the microbiome and the presence of blood can change the microbiome as well. Things are out of sorts for a few days, and then most of the time they bounce back. Sometimes, though, they don't. Um, sometimes there is a dramatic permanent shift that happens in the microbiome during menses, um, and it doesn't go back. And we don't know why it doesn't bounce back sometimes. The other thing to keep in mind is that the vaginal microbiome changes a little bit from day to day. And so if you were to take a snapshot of your microbiome today when you're not menstruating and a snapshot again tomorrow when you're not menstruating, they might look a little different. And that might depend on if you've, um, if you've had sex, if you've been exercising, if you've used any products for sure, if there's stress, all sorts of different things. That or eating ice cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. So, 
and estrogen again is the key thing in keeping those lactobacilli healthy. And so that that principle then applies to our life course also. So you can imagine when you go through menopause, your estrogen levels drop, and that is going to cause a change in your vaginal microbiome. Not as many lactobacilli and more of these other unhealthy anaerobic pathogens. So that's common in menopause, but that's also common in lactation, which is a low estrogen setting. But then pregnancy is a higher estrogen setting. And so very often, not always, but very often what you see with pregnancy is that the vaginal microbiome improves and women have more lactobacilli during pregnancy. So really, really, you just follow what the estrogen is doing. That tells you what the vaginal microbiome is doing. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Now, I may say, well, why don't I just take the probiotic that has this bacteria in it and I'm all good? Like, what would you say to that? Yeah, well, I would say that there is some evidence that probiotics might be helpful. And in fact, our company, Vaginal Biome Science, is doing clinical studies looking at whether probiotics can help a variety of conditions. But the data are not conclusive yet. And so the thing about probiotics is that they tend to be a really safe thing to try. So as long as you're not immunocompromised and you want to try probiotics, you can try them. And But, but we don't know enough yet to, to be absolutely sure how to take them, how often to take them, which strains to take. I would say if you're looking at using probiotics, number one, vaginal is going to be more effective than oral probiotics. And number two, you want to look for species that are normally found in the vagina because they're different than the species that are found in the gut. So again, you want to look at for lactobacillus crispatus. That should be the main thing. Lactobacillus gasseri, Lactobacillus jensenii, and then if there are a few others in the mix um, that might get established uh, really easily on um, some good good oral probiotics can be included in a vaginal blend too, but, but Crispatus gasseri and jensenii are the three to look for. Okay, because I've seen so many doctors talking about, be careful what you put in your vagina, and you all are doing so many studies on the vaginal microbiome. Is it as simple as look for these and as long as it says use in your vagina, it's easy enough and we can just all purchase those probiotics? Um, or is it a little more complicated than that? So I guess I would emphasize that probiotics, uh, vaginal suppository probiotics right now are still very much kind of a Wild West kind of scenario okay. where... Uh, the FDA isn't really regulating those products and anybody can be producing a probiotic. So you definitely want to be looking at the ingredient list. You want to know what you're putting in your vagina. But at the same time, as I mentioned, probiotics are considered, uh, they're generally recognized as safe. So most people shouldn't have too much trouble with probiotics. Although anytime you put something in your vagina, you do run the risk of disturbing the vaginal microbiome, generating a, a yeast infection for yourself or something like that. As long as you're prepared and you kind of understand that you're doing something that doesn't have solid science behind it and it's just something that you're trying, you know, uh, I think that's fine. Um, but don't expect probiotics to be a miracle wonder, wonder drug, like you're going to take one suppository and that's going to magically fix all your problems. It's the, the science is still very mixed on it. So speaking of the science, you know, one of the things I, I keep hearing about is this connection between the gut microbiome and the vaginal microbiome. So I'd love for you to share what you've seen there with regards to the research. Yeah. So what I can say there is that there is a connection. Um, we do know that there is, and it, this will sound really gross, but there is a fecal vaginal transmission of microbes that occurs. And it sounds gross, but it's actually perfectly natural and can be healthy as long as your gut is healthy. And it doesn't matter how clean you are, how hygienic you are, there's going to be some of this transmission from the fecal route to the vagina. The microbiomes are in physical contact with each other. And we know this because if you look at different women, the microbes that you find in the vagina are found in their gut also. And it'll be different from woman to woman. So we know that there's a, a physical connection between them. But the two different micro, microbiomes are very distinct from each other. So the gut, you want to have lots of diversity and lots of different bacteria. The vagina, you really only want to have lactobacillus crispatus. Like, that's it. Okay, so. got it. Now, is there research that you've seen, on, because there is this connection, right, on 
things one can do like from a diet perspective or anything else to again remain proactive because we've theoretically have spoken about keep it healthy okay but then my question would be okay so what can i do to keep it healthy yeah so um that's a really important question uh the fact is that diet is not something that's been looked at an awful lot with regards to vaginal microbiome i'm aware of one study that's looked at some associations um suggesting that maybe high fat diet um can be detrimental to the vaginal microbiome but that's the only one that i'm aware of but i would say because of the connection between the gut and the vagina, anything you can do to keep your gut healthy is going to help the vagina too. Okay. So of course, um, a, a diet high in fiber with good um, prebiotics in your diet, that's going to, those are all going to be helpful indirectly for vaginal health. But the other kinds of things that you can do in terms of maintaining vaginal health really relate to keeping the, the right amount of um, moisture and the right pH in the vagina. And so there are vaginal moisturizers on the market that have the right osmolality and the right pH. They have lactic acid. And those kinds of products really are going to be your best tool if you have some kind of disturbance. Um, if you have vaginal dryness, if you have pain, then those products are really, really good at helping ease those symptoms. But really, if you want to restore the microbiome, estrogen is, is the thing that does that. So women going through menopause, estrogen... Um, replacement therapy, that's that's the thing that helps. And for those who may not have listened to some of the episodes I've done on sexual health, the lube and vaginal moisturizer are different products. And so, correct. Yes, yes. They're, they're different products, but the FDA uh, regulates them in the same way. So right. essentially, if, if a company is producing a vaginal moisturizer, they get them cleared as a lubricant. And so that's where things can get a little bit confusing. Got right. it. So that's, that's why there's confusion. A basically, the difference between a lubricant and a moisturizer, it has to do with the lubricity um, of a lubricant, where as, as there's a gliding kind of motion that it, it allows um, a reduction of friction with that gliding motion, whereas the, the moisturizers are not intended to do that. Um, so they're, they're designed to deliver moisture to tissues. How does one know what to pick? Like, for example, I interviewed one expert on sexual health. And it was so funny. She said, um, never, ever have the guy buy the lube. <laughs> Always. You should be the one to buy it and carry it around with you. Uh, and I was like, you know, that's actually really a brilliant, you know, suggestion. I and agree. <laughs> I totally agree with that. It's your health that it's affecting. The lube right. is really not going to affect a man's health. It's going to affect the woman's health. So, so yes, it's really important to choose the right lubricant. We've known now for at least 15 years that osmolality is a huge thing when it comes to lubricants. And I won't go into all of the reasons why we know that, but osmolality is essentially how concentrated are the products in this, this preparation. The vaginal fluid it is actually one of the more high, high osmolality fluids of the body. But the lubricants that are produced are just like orders of magnitude so much higher. And what happens is it draws water out of the vaginal tissues, dehydrates them, it makes the cells die, and it makes the, the cells um, actually detach from the lining. So that lining gets thinner and thinner. Um, these hyperosmolar lubricants can predispose you to bacterial vaginosis, to acquisition of sexually transmitted infections. So you really don't want to use a hyperosmolar lubricant. You want to find one that's isoosmolar, or if you have to, or, or on the side of hypo or to, or a, a more dilute um, lubricant. And I've been asked before, well, how do you know what the osmolality is of a lubricant? And my response for that is, if a company knows that they should be paying attention to it, they'll advertise it. <laughs> they'll tell you that it's an isoosmolar or isoosmotic lubricant on their website or on their product packaging. Clean Love was founded originally um, look, trying to produce organic products and, and all natural products. And along the way, as Wendy Stragar, our founder and CEO, she, she uh, met with biophysicists, scientists who explained why hyperosmolar products are so damaging. And she realized that it's much more important to be healthy for women's tissues than it is to be able to make that organic claim. And again, it's, it's possible. We, we still have one, one product um, that is, but in order to make a really good lubricant uh, that meets all those criteria, 
some of those claims kind of have to fall fall off sometimes. And the organic one is that one that fell off for some of the Good Clean Love products so that we could focus on vaginal health. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much for explaining that because to me, I think if uh, people don't get an aha from other episodes where we've talked about here are the types of lubricants, like this was an aha. Like I did not realize the significant impact of using the wrong kind of lubricant. Um, like I'm right. now to the point where it's like, if I happen to be with a, a man who, and I forget to bring up like, sorry, <laughs> not happening today. <laughs> I'm like nervous now. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, and, and I think I would say it varies from woman to woman. Some women, if you have recurrent BV, if you use the wrong lube, you're going to have a BV episode. Like, I mean, I can't say that hundred percent as a scientist, wow. but, but it, you know, it's a, it's a really strong trigger. If you're someone who never has problems with vaginal health, you can, you might be able to get away with using it once in a while, but I really wouldn't recommend it. So, I mean, and, and the thing is, I know that organic claims are, are very important to a lot of people, but the potential health impact of using non-organic ingredients is so much smaller than the potential health impact of using a hyperosmotic lubricant. It's just not even the same planet. <laughs> the other thing that we think about in terms of ingredients that go into lubricants are the preservatives, the parabens, chlorhexidine is used in some, and then the polyquaternions. Those are things that you want to avoid also. Parabens have gotten a bad reputation, but actually they're kind of lowest on that list in terms of importance. It's the, the polyquaternions and chlorhexidine that are actually worse. Uh, but, but parabens still, I would personally stay away from. Some ingredients affect the vaginal cells more than the bacteria or vice versa. But if you're putting something in your vagina, the bacteria and the vaginal cells are both going to be impacted by that thing. So lubricants, vaginal moisturizers, anything you're putting in the vagina, all of these things apply. Okay, got it. But then there are ones that are specific to fertility or specific for women going through perimenopause and menopause. What do we need to know there? Like, are they really that different? Are there things they're doing with those marketed for these specific life stages for a woman that maybe hinder it being as effective as using something that's more of a general lube because of the ingredients that they may have to add in. Again, I'm not, I have not read the ingredients. I am not a scientist in, yeah. in developing these products, but you know, they probably have to do something or maybe it's just a marketing language that they use. So for most of these, if you're talking about menopause, particularly, that's just a marketing, a marketing okay. claim. I don't believe there's anything different about menopause targeted products for vaginal dryness than there are for a woman of any age who has vaginal dryness. But the thing that is different is the, the fertility lubricants. Okay. So here, here's, here's why a fertility lubricant has, um, if you're claiming to be a fertility lubricant, there are additional regulations that the FDA puts on you. And so you have to show that you're compatible with sperm, that you're not killing too many sperm, right. And that you're safe with embryos. In order to show that a lubricant is safe for sperm, most of the time they make these lubricants at a pH that sperm like. So that's a pH of seven or six. It's much higher than the pH of a vagina. If a vagina has a pH of seven for a long period of time, that's a really unhealthy vagina. I mean, that that's going to cause BV, yeast infections, you know, all, all sorts of potential problems. So the challenge is that if a woman is trying to conceive, she's probably having sex on a regular basis. She's using this fertility lubricant a lot. She's exposing her vaginal tissues to this high pH that stays elevated for eight to 12 hours, depending on the, how well the lubricant stays in. Versus if you have sex without a lubricant, the semen itself does have a neutral pH, that's pH seven. So the, the vaginal pH does rise for a little while, but then it's going to come back down to normal as the vaginal fluid kind of clears all that substance out. When you're using a fertility lubricant, there's just so much more volume that, that the vagina, it just takes so much longer for the vagina to get back to its own original pH. I only know of one vaginal, uh, I'm sorry, one fertility lubricant on the market that uses a different approach. And that's the one produced by Good Clean Love. It's called Biogenesis. And it is, um, it uses special pH buffering technology so that the lubricant itself still 
is a low pH that matches vaginal tissues. So it's safe for vaginas. But then during sex, once the semen is there and mixes in, the pH changes to the pH of the semen. And so it's still safe for sperm. And then eventually it comes back down to the pH of the vagina more quickly because of this pH buffering technology. So, you know, I think that's a fantastic kind of approach. I was not involved in, in um, producing that. That was, that was before my time, but I think it's such a fantastic idea. Uh, again, based on biophysicists knowing about actual, how things actually work in the vagina, they can develop some really great products. What would they want to look for then when, if they're looking for a, a fertility friendly lubricant that doesn't have the impact that so many that exist on the market today have. Mm-hmm. So this is where it's, where it's a little bit challenging to, to pick a good fertility lubricant. Okay. Um, if, if the fertility lubricant is approved by the FDA, then you know that it has passed those, those tests that it's safe for sperm. Okay. So the FDA does have to approve that one. Okay. Okay. Yes. Secondly, in my opinion, finding a fertility lubricant that has a pH between four and five is going to be safer for for vaginas than a fertility lubricant that has a pH between six and seven or even above seven. This, the ones that are safe for vaginas will have that lower pH. Do you have information about the science of, do you really need a fertility lubricant? So I don't know how much you've studied that because like, for example, I know that it used to be that you had to keep your, your pelvis lifted up to make sure the sperm went in the right direction. And now that's debunked. Right. So, um, you know, I just want to ask the question of what does the science say about how much you really need that? Right. So I would say if you don't need a lubricant and are having sex comfortably without a lubricant you're fine. Just don't use the lubricant. Um, if you need a lubricant, then you want to have a fertility lubricant versus a regular lubricant because it will have been shown to be safe for sperm. And again, that has to do mostly with the pH. Um, most traditional lubricants do have a pH that's matched for vaginal health. Uh, some of them are kind of multi-use, so vaginal or rectal health. So the pH would be a little bit higher in those cases, but still too low for sperm. Okay. Um, and so those lubricants might kill off sperm <laughs> and, so, but you don't know, you just don't know. But if it's, if it's an FDA approved fertility lubricant, it's, it's safe for sperm. So now a next step. So you mentioned another a thing about, um, how, if you're using a f- fertility lubricant as an example, and this could be for anything where any challenge a woman may, may have is okay, well, let me just douche. Let me just douche that fertility lubricant out or let me douche whatever I did out. What would be your response to that? Douching. Don't douche. If there, if you take one thing away from this whole episode, don't douche. All right. Douches should not, should not be used. And in fact, I'm actually preparing a a talk right now on vaginal, vulvovaginal hygiene. And one of the things that I've been looking into is what's the literature on douching. And so douches, I mean, they're, they're the rare events like tears in the vagina that happen, burns, either chemical or, or heat for if you're using hot fluids. But I'm like, all these really rare things can happen. But, but more often, douching is associated with pelvic inflammatory disease and with ectopic pregnancy. Those have been known for 30 years. What? Um, at least. Oh, yes. And, and douching is associated with like a long list of other conditions like BV and yeast infection, cervical cancer, ovarian cancer. Like the list goes on and on and on about women's health conditions that are associated with douching. And the thing is that um, even if these are like, like some of those are really proven associations, like you just don't want to. And so there's risk. There is absolute risk with douching. There is no benefit to douching other than smelling good. That's the only benefit. And so are you really willing to put your health at risk just to smell a little different? Like that, it, that should not be the trade-off that women are, are taking. If I may ask, because I, I, we have to have the honest conversations, a normal smell so that women aren't freaking out about, oh my gosh, I have to smell like a flower. Like what (laughs) should it be like? And what would your scientific self say to all of us who might be paranoid no matter what? 
Yeah, you know, that that's a great question. And if you're someone who's usually healthy, you know what your usual smell smells like, and that's that's right. fine. But if you're someone who's struggled with BV for a very long time or various conditions, it may have been so long since you've had a normal odor that you don't remember what it's supposed to smell like, right? Got it. So it's almost easier to describe all the things it shouldn't smell like than what it does. Okay, that's fine. Should, but so let me start. It should have a slight odor. It should be kind of musky. Um, it shouldn't smell fishy. It shouldn't smell like something is rotten. Those are both. So fishy is um, associated with BV. A rotten smell is associated with a condition called AV, aerobic vaginitis. Um, it shouldn't smell necessarily like ammonia. It shouldn't smell like urine. It shouldn't smell like feces. It, like all those things mostly are hygiene issues. If it smells like onions, that's probably sweat. And that's probably vulvar, like body odor kinds of bacteria. It's not vaginal. A lot of the times women think they have vaginal odor. It's really vulvar odor. Um, so kind of teasing that out is important because if you're douching, if you're putting something in the vagina and the problem is the vulva, you're not even addressing the right issue. Those are all things that shouldn't smell like. Um, but a lot of times, uh, again, it's vulvar hygiene versus, um, vaginal hygiene. That's, that's the issue. But again, douching is a temporary fix. And so it may make you smell better for a short period of time, but it's not doing anything to help fix any problem. And it's probably making problems worse and, and probably perpetuating your need for that product. And certainly women should not think they need to smell like roses or lavender or herbs or anything like that. Women, it should be okay to smell like a woman that like, that's fine. <laughs> As people who talk about women's health, when we talk about odor, we should, we should do a better job of saying we mean like unusual odor because there is a normal healthy odor. That's perfectly fine. Okay. Thank you so much. And speaking of odor, now let's move to taste. I assume like any sort of lube that tastes like, I don't know, peppermint, I don't know, whatever flavor is out there is a big no-no. <laughs> One of the things that I am learning about, um, again, I'm not a product formulator, and that's not my expertise, but, but as I've looked into this a little bit, there's a difference between a fragrance and a flavor. Okay. So, and I, I don't know, I don't know that there's a chemical difference, but in terms of like what's approved for like food use, for example, flavors are approved for food use. Right. So, so flavors, if you, if you want to, if, if you're getting a product that has a, a scent to it, something with a flavor is a better choice than something with a fragrance. So if you Got see it. perfume listed, I personally would avoid that. If I see a natural flavor, vanilla or something, that's probably okay. FemPower Health is pleased to partner with the upcoming FemTech and Consumer Innovation Summit. The summit is the latest deep dive event, part of the Women's Health Innovation Series, looking to tackle this growing sector of women's health, having had continental success in driving innovation, investment, research, and partnerships in traditional women's health care by bringing together critical stakeholders. Join us in New York on June 7th and 8th as we channel this success into the consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. Another question that I have is around since you are a researcher, I have to ask about vaginal steaming. So, what does yeah. the research say? Because, you know, in the ancient times, this was done. And so was it something they should never have been doing? What do we know? So, so the whole idea with vaginal steaming, personally, personally, I have never done it. I don't plan on ever trying it. Um, number one, there's always a risk of burns. Yes. When you're, 100%. when you have something hot enough to be steaming, the risk of burn to the vulva is, is serious. It, I mean, it's, it's real. So, um, so that is an issue, but more, I mean, it's not going to do anything. It's just, it's a thing to spend your money on. That's really not going to help at all. They call it vaginal steaming, but if anything, really the only thing it would be doing would be vulvar steaming. The steam will get onto the vulva. So if you like the sensation, it's like a sauna, like, eh, I guess, but 
most people don't want their vulva to be steamy and sweaty. Most people want to be clean. The thing to understand about the vagina is that even though we think of it as a hollow tube, it's usually collapsed. It's usually, unless there's something inserted in it, it is, it's closed. And so unless you're vaginal, unless you're doing vaginal steaming with something to prop the vagina open, there's nothing, again, that steam is not going in the vagina. And so for any claims that have to do with menstrual cramps or the uterus or anything, there is no possible way that vaginal steaming is doing anything to affect the uterus. It's just, even if the vagina were open, the cervix is still closed. And so things are not getting into the uterus. So, so vaginal steam, it's one of the things I'm, I'm using as an example in my, my webinar of like, don't do this again. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not as against it as I am with vaginal douching. Because with right. douching, like you're messing up the microbiome, you're doing all sorts of bad things with douching. With vaginal steaming, I just think it's like, eh, it's not, okay. it's not doing anything for you. And I think, you know, you think about ancient times. And again, I've, I've spent some time thinking about what did people do in the past? Because women have had vulvovaginal conditions for millennia. Ever since the beginning of the human race, we've had right. vaginas we've needed to treat conditions. We just have. And so people put all sorts of things. They put milk and honey and they put pine bark and they put all sorts of mercury and arsenic and lead. They put all sorts of things in the vagina to try to, we know better now. (laughs) We're not in ancient Greece or Mesopotamia or wherever it is, right? We have products that are designed for vaginal health. We understand what's good for vaginas and what's not good for vaginas. We have products that are tested, that are FDA approved, that we know are not going to be contaminated with bacteria if you use them before the expiration date, you know, like all those kinds of things. Use good products that are approved. We have them now. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, So the next is birth control. Does that have an impact on the vaginal microbiome? And is it the hormonal versus non-hormonal? Like, tell us what's going on there, because so many women are on birth control. Yes. And so the answer here is that it depends a lot on what kind of birth control you're using. So if you're using a hormonal birth control that has estrogen, there's some evidence that that might actually improve the vaginal microbiome. As I mentioned earlier, the higher the estrogen, the better the microbiome. So uh, women on oral contraceptives that kind of the traditional oral contraceptive where it's an estrogen and a progestin combined, those generally are helpful. Um, there's quite a bit of evidence now that copper IUDs are actually harmful, that there's an increased risk of bacterial vaginosis with copper IUDs. So I don't know why it's a small effect. So like, if that's your, if that's your choice, like if you can't use, like I'm someone who cannot use estrogen, I have a blood clotting disorder, so I can't use it. And so if I needed something and that was my only choice, then, then that might be an acceptable trade-off, right? If you have other alternatives, you should go with other alternatives, I think, um, because of that risk. The question about what about other kinds of IUDs, like Mirena, um, Kylina, there are all sorts of different IUDs that have hormones embedded in them. The The data on those is mixed. It's not as clear. There haven't been as many studies done on those, but copper IUDs in particular are, are not great for the biome. Wow. So you've mm-hmm. spoken about all this research, and I guess- First is, are there other products that we should talk about that I don't even think of? Because, you know, I we did some research with my team and we looked at what are some of the common questions, but yeah. there may be things like I would never have even thought in a million years might have yeah. an impact and I would never have thought to ask. So is there something yeah. there that that we should yes. be aware of that might be a, oh my God, really? Seriously? <laughs> so there, there are a few things there. Um, one big thing is that some women try is boric acid. Um, Boric acid um, is related to borax, like the the thing you might use in laundry or or cleaning agents. It's not Mm -hmm. exactly the same molecule. Boric acid is used by some people to try to fight yeast infections or to try to fight BV. Um, The data on boric acid and BV is just, there's not a lot there. Okay. Um, So I would not recommend it for BV at all. The data on um, yeast infections, there are more There are more studies on boric acid and yeast infection, but usually those are studies that have been done in women who aren't responding to traditional antifungals and they're like desperate for something. And so their doctor will recommend 
that they tried boric acid in a very limited way. The thing with boric acid is that it can be toxic, like fatally toxic if it's ingested. So this is why we, we stay away from it. We, we recommend not using it. When it's inserted vaginally, not very much of it gets absorbed. Like I think one study said 6% absorption. So it's not very much. And so that small amount they thought was okay. Personally, I wouldn't, I, I tell people don't use boric acid unless a doctor specifically tells you to. And even then only for the length of time that they tell you to don't like incorporate it into your forever routine. So that that's something it's popular on like natural type websites, but it's, it's potentially dangerous. And particularly if you have small kids or pets, like definitely keep it away from them. Uh, the second thing is food products. Like the amount of things you see about women putting anything they find in their kitchen in their vagina, yogurt, lemon juice, vinegar, uh, apple cider vinegar, every, every kind of vinegar you can think of, coconut oil, olive oil, all sorts of things people will try to put in their vagina either to use as a lubricant or um, to try to manage some kind of condition that they might be having. And again, what I would say to that is there are products designed for whatever your purpose is that you're using those. There are products that are safe and effective, and I would recommend okay. using those products. Number one, using oil-based products um, for lubricants. If you're also using with a condom, they're going to break down the condom. So like, don't use oils um, as a lubricant for that reason. But also like oils, like you, you can put oil in the vagina and it's not going to be a huge deal, but it's not supposed to be there. It's just not something that's naturally found in the vagina. So don't put it there. Um, and then you just don't know like what kind of bacteria are growing in that food that you've had in your pantry or your fridge or whatever. It just don't. The question I have, because you mentioned we've only touched the surface and we're kind of at this point where the more we're learning, the more we realize we don't know. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was only in 1992 that the FDA started mandating women partake in clinical trials. We know that there was a slow uptake. We know mm -hmm. there's been some disasters like with Ambien, they realized that women needed a different dose. Um, my understanding in talking to some experts is clinical trials still don't even separate out women on birth control versus not. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, these are just examples of we've barely touched the surface, like dosing and all this stuff. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a couple of reactions people may have, you know, you may have practitioners like functional medicine doctors and Eastern medicine practitioners who may say, well, in my clinical practice, this is fine. You just haven't done the research. Just a lot of different perspectives. That's just one example. So I guess, where are we? Like what, how do we judge? Cause you know, I even think back to diets. Like I remember when I was younger, it was don't eat eggs. Like right. it was eat eggs, then don't eat eggs. And now it's like, it's fine. Um, and I think there's some logical things like with diet, like low fat, they added more sugar and we know sugar is not good. So there's some logical things I think that are easy to understand, but just because of all these dynamics that have impacted the, the research on women and how much, how little we really know, like, mm -hmm. what do we do? I mean, is this, let's keep it at what the research says so far and all the things you've shared today. And we stick with that until we know better. Yeah. So this is, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And that it's a, it's a question about a larger question about the role science plays in society. And I'll use COVID-19 as an example of this, because with COVID-19, we saw science trying to solve an emerging problem, putting forth some hypotheses about how to solve that problem, and then not having time to really fully test that before we had to make decisions about rolling it out to the public. But the need for the public was so great that the benefit risk ratio was such that we needed to roll out without waiting on all of the data. And science takes a long time to figure things out, especially the more complicated the question is, the longer it takes to figure out. And diet in particular is super complex because anytime you change one thing, you're also changing a different characteristic. Yep. You can't change one thing without changing another. Women's health, like you said, it's been hampered in the past because women were excluded on the basis of the fact that a woman might get pregnant and therefore a fetus might be harmed in this clinical trial. And so women were not included for a long time and still pregnant women, lactating women are usually excluded from trials. There is a place in the scientific process for 
um, respectful disagreement, right? So scientists put to put forth a hypothesis. Another scientist puts forth a competing hypothesis. And in the scientific process, the, the method you you go through and you test these hypotheses, and it takes time to figure out how all of these different competing facts fit together. In the meantime, people have to make decisions about how they're going to take care of themselves, how they're going to take care of their, their loved ones, their children. They have to make real decisions. And so as much as we would like to rely on what we call evidence-based practice, where there is evidence, follow the evidence. But a lot of times there just isn't evidence to follow. And in that case, you know, I think it's perfectly fair that different people have different philosophies about how to maintain, maintain health. Different healthcare practitioners tend to have different populations of people that come to them. And so, you know, a lot of, um, I'll just, a lot of the gynecologists that I talk with are like anti-soap or anti any kind of cleanser on the vulva, but they work with patients who are particularly sensitive, who have recurrent BV, recurrent UTI, recurrent um, yeast infections. For those populations, that's great advice. For the general population, 90% of women, they probably can and maybe even should use a cleanser. So I think, you know, paying attention to, to what your own philosophy of healthcare is and finding a practitioner who works with you with your healthcare philosophy, I think that's really important. And paying attention to what your body is telling you in spite of what your philosophy is, is also important. Because if you have a philosophy about some fad and you're following that fad and you say, well, my health is getting worse it means that I'm not doing this fad enough that I need to double down on it. Maybe that means the fad isn't the right thing to be following actually. Right. So if your body's getting worse, maybe stop doing that thing you're doing and try something different. So, so having a philosophy, but also being willing to be flexible, you know, finding that, that fine line is really, really important, but having a healthcare practitioner who's willing to work with you is really important and who's willing to listen to you. Wow. That is seriously one of the most beautiful answers that I have ever heard. Thank you. Okay. So real quick, a couple questions. One is at-home tests. Mm -hmm. So I I follow the startup world, love women's health and all the evolutions that are happening. Boy, has it exploded since when I started and it was just all about fertility. Like we've already now gotten to menopause. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm seeing even these at-home tests for the health of your vaginal microbiome. Any thoughts around those? Any precautions that we should be taking? Um, Yeah, I I think that for um, if you're someone who just wants to know about your general health, I think it's a great fun thing to do. Um, I actually am waiting on some results personally, um, just to to see. We had we had a kit left over. And so I'm like, yeah, may as well try. Um, The thing to keep in mind is that the at home tests, uh, the ones that I'm aware of, at least, are not going to tell you if you have a sexually transmitted infection. And when you think of, so women who have vaginitis, the top three reasons are bacterial vaginosis, yeast infection, and trick, trichomoniasis. Trick is an STI. They're not going to tell you if you have trick. Uh, they're not going to uh. tell you if you have chlamydia or gonorrhea or syphilis or HIV or HPV or anything like that. So if you're having vaginal symptoms and thinking that you're going to get the answer from an at-home test, you might not get the actual answer. So that's one thing to keep in mind. So so just to kind of know what your biome is, sure, but to diagnose yourself at home, probably not. So those those are what I kind of keep in mind. The other thing is that when you get a report, um, I've worked with two different um, direct-to-consumer companies um, in our research studies, and both of them give you um, data down to an abundance of 0.1%. Uh, like if you have 0.1% of some random species, it's kind of irrelevant, Right. So what I would recommend is don't get overwhelmed. If you have a list of 20 species, look at the top three. Those are probably going to be the most important. But if you have 20 species popping up on your list, that's a sign that you have an unhealthy vagina. A healthy vagina has mostly one species, like 90 plus percent lactobacillus crispatus or gastrite or densenii. If you have anything else, else than that, then that's an indication that your microbiome is off a little bit. But it's also a test at a point in time, right? Yes, absolutely. And like I mentioned before, the microbiome changes from day to day. It changes based on menstruation, based on exercise, intercourse, whatever products you've been using. And so if you take a test today and you get your results in six weeks, like eh, you don't have the same microbiome anymore, probably. Okay. Um, you know, some women have bounced back and they're pretty stable. Other women will be dramatically different and it's, it's hard okay. to know. Interesting. Okay. Thank you for that. 
What would be your top thing that you'd love to see the research looking into now? Why do some people who have a BV-like microbiome have BV symptoms and other women don't? That's what I want to know. So like half of the women who have a BV microbiome don't have any symptoms and they go around with life perfectly happy. They have an elevated vaginal pH. They're perfectly fine. They don't have any issues. Why? Why do some women suffer and other women don't? That's what I want to know. That's, that's the big thing. And if we can figure that out, we could actually figure out what BV is. <laughs> we actually, you know, we talk about BV, we know all this stuff about BV, but but we have a hard time defining what it actually is because so many women have a BV microbiome with actually, without actually having symptoms. That's what I would like to know. I'd like to know the same thing for yeast too, because like 50% of women harbor yeast like all the time, but don't actually have yeast infections. Thank you so much. Can't wait to share this. Thanks so much, Georgie. Thanks for having me here. It's been a pleasure to share. Thank you for tuning in to this discussion on the FemPower Health podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about FemPower Health. And right after this episode is over, please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe to our show. And another way to support FemPower Health Podcast is to leave a review where you listen to podcasts. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for information purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health Podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. See you next week. Thank you for joining us on another enlightening episode of FemPower Health. No matter where you are in your journey, our website is brimming with content tailored to your specific topic of interest or life stage. Dive in and discover the resources and insights waiting for you. Your voice matters to us. And if you found value in this episode, please take a moment to write a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but it also helps others discover our podcast. By spreading the word, you're empowering women everywhere with the information they need to navigate their unique health journeys. And if this episode resonated with you, please don't keep it a secret. Share it with friends, loved ones, or anyone you believe would benefit from the information. Together, we can create a world where every woman feels supported, informed, and empowered. Remember, knowledge is power, and FemPower Health is here to guide you and support you in every step of the way. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for informational purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Until next time.